come on forward, everyone. Find a spot to sit. All right. Good to see everyone. Come on up. All right. Well, I want you to know that there's, there's something you should all know about me that I haven't told you yet. I am a top-notch juggler. I'm like world-class, one of the best ever. Did you know that about me? Yeah, I'm a great juggler. I'm really, really good. Uh, I travel around the world and do juggling performances for people to see. So that's something you should know about me. And so this morning, I brought some bean bags along, and I thought maybe I could show you how great of a juggler I am. Do you want to see? Do you want to see me juggle? All right, here we go. Ready? Wait a minute. That was that was just a warm up. Okay, here. Here, let me let me try again. I'm I'm really good. Okay, I'm ready to go now. Ready? All right. Well, you're gonna have to trust me. I'm really good. I'm just maybe a little off off today. Actually, I'm I'm better with one hand than I am with two. Okay. So, want to see me do one hand? Ready? Oh. Oh gosh, that that's not going so well. Um, you know what though? One of my special tricks is to juggle with, with six bean bags. Okay? So let me let me show you how good I am with six bean bags. You ready? It's it's not going so well today. Oh my goodness. Good thing I'm not juggling with rotten tomatoes. Um <clears throat> I I must be just off a little bit this morning, but but I'm a really, really good juggler. How many of you believe that I'm a really good juggler? Nobody. Oh, my. Why don't you believe me? Because you're off track a lot. I'm off track a lot. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because my actions, what I did, it didn't line up with what I said, right? They were different. What I said and what I showed were, were different things, right? The truth is I can, I can juggle a little bit. Um, but I've never traveled the world and done performances and things like that. I'm not that good. Shocking, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, So there's a difference in what I said compared to the reality of what I could do, right? Things didn't line up. There were inconsistencies there, big inconsistencies, right? They didn't line up. And so that's how some people live their spiritual lives too. Some people say they follow Jesus but their lives look very different, and their lives are actually full of sin and characterized by sin. They may even do some things that, that look good, right? Or they might say, I'm a Christian because I go to church, or I'm a Christian because I, I'm nice and I, I do good things. But in reality, they love their sin more than anything. And God wants us as believers to live our lives consistently with what we say we believe, right? Lining up all the way. And we read that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, says that we are to walk or live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So our actions are to line up with our belief, what we believe. Because when we come to faith in, in Jesus, God takes away all the old, all the sin of our past, and He makes us new. And he gives us a new identity, a new purpose. And then in the power of God, the power and strength that God provides, we are to live 
in such a way that our lives show and demonstrate what God has done in us, that God has saved us from our sin, forgive us of all that sin and given us new life. And so we are to put off that sin and live for Jesus in all areas of our lives. So if we say we're Christian, if we say we follow Jesus and we love him, then we should have our actions follow that and not get caught up in our sin. We should put off that sin and follow Jesus. All right? So if you try to juggle sometime, just remember how great of a juggler I am. All right? All right, good. You can go back and have a seat. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. I guess when we do next year's talent show, we know what Pastor Jeff won't be doing. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat, under the seat in front of you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. One of the things I want to clue you into, warn you about right off is this text is a very difficult one, uh, and it's not neat and tidy. It doesn't necessarily lend itself to you walking away, having all of the things neatly arranged in your mind so that you'll know for certain exactly what the answer to all your questions are. And I think the reason that that is, is because uh, God inspired Paul to wrote so that you walk away having to deal with this. You can't just kind of walk away, it's all finished, all the answer, uh, questions are answered and you're good. Uh, this one wants to do some business with you. It's, it's a bit ambiguous and I think that's good. And so uh, I would ask you to let this text have its way with you. Wrestle with it. Deal with it. This text wants to deal with you this morning. Let's read it. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor those who practice, sexual homo- or practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, your testimonies are wonderful. Please, by your Spirit, teach our souls to keep them. Give me the grace to unfold your word so that it might give us light and impart understanding. Please turn to us now and be gracious to us. Make your face to shine upon your servants and teach us your statutes. Amen. Paul in chapter 5 clarified in verse 11 in a previous letter he had written to them, exhorting them to judge. He didn't at all mean judging people outside the church. But in verse 12, to make judgments inside the church. And now in chapter 6, Verses 9 and 10, he's doing that. And he's speaking to the church, 
do not be deceived. He's speaking to us, to people who call on the name of Christ, people who call themselves believers or the brothers and sisters. He's speaking to us. Do not, church, be deceived. Do you not know? And so he is judging. He is writing a text that causes us to make judgments about ourselves and maybe even others here. So what he exhorted them in chapter 5, he's doing now in chapter 6. And this judgment in verses 9 and 10 follow right on this issue of believers making wrong judgments against unbelievers, or against believers, right? They have in the church uh, issues of conflict, grievances between brothers in the church, brothers and sisters, sisters in the church, and instead of going to the church for judgment, instead of going to the church for resolution, one brother took another brother to unbelievers to get judgment. And, and so they're divisive. They're wrong. And, and then Paul follows that up with, but do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They're acting unrighteously in judgment. They, their God is the money they hope to win at court rather than God in heaven. Right? They're greedy. They're unloving. They're hateful. And then Paul writes, do not be deceived. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So this is a hard text calling the church to pass judgment on itself. So this text wants to do something in our lives. And so what I want to do is talk about that issue there. Verse 9, or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I just want to, what, what is that? I want to do that first. And secondly, I want to get into, if you're looking at the ESV in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, you see a little number 4 there. See that? Yeah? The ESV did a very bad job of translating the Greek there. And I'm not saying that because I know better than them. I'm saying that because all the other translations other than the ESV and NIV, get it right. And I want to talk about that issue there because the word effeminacy is the sin that they've cut out. And we got to hit on that one. So those are the two things I want to do uh, this morning. So first of all, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous not inherit the kingdom of God? What's going on there? So he's not speaking again to people outside the church. He's speaking to people inside the church. He wants those in the church to take this to heart. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Then he goes through this list of sins, and then he concludes it with in verse 10, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So first, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God here is the reign of God over everything. So when Jesus came, he came saying the kingdom of God has come. Wherever God is, the kingdom is. So the kingdom of God is about the reign of God, the rule of God. It's about God himself. It's not a place. It's God. And we know that at the end of time, 
God himself will descend. He will defeat all of his enemies. And heaven will come to earth. The earth will be renewed without any sin. And God will reign forever with his people on the earth. And no unrighteous will be there. This is what's happening in this text. This is talking about eternity. This is talking about reigning with God on the earth forever. And God is speaking to people who call on Christ. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not reign with God, will not inherit the kingdom of God? So what does that mean? What does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? That, that means to take it on. That means to be given it as a gift. Now this shouldn't be anything shocking to you. Matthew 5.8, Jesus said the pure in heart will see God, which means the impure of heart will not. In Revelation 21, speaking of this kingdom coming to earth in verses 26 and 27. It says, They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. In Psalm 15, Who who can dwell in your holy hill? Who shall sojourn in your tent, O God? Who will inherit the kingdom of God? His answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, nor do evil against his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his eye, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears his own heart, does not change. Right? So who will dwell in God's kingdom? Those who are living righteously. You go back a few books in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. Right? So strive for peace and be holy. Strive for peace and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And this is a teaching that is utterly ignored in the church today. One of the faults of the gospel-centered movement, which is the movement to make sure that at the center of the church is the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a good thing. One of the faults, one of the errors, is to neglect the truth that our actual behavior matters. We see this spelled out in verse 11. Verse 11 isn't a comfort. Verse 11 isn't saying, but don't worry about the list of sins that came before in verses 9 and 12 and you're forgiven. Verse 11 is saying, you used to do these sins. These sins used to define you, but such were you. You're no longer like this. You have been changed. You're not the same. But such were some of you. Jesus Christ came and died and rose. You've been forgiven your sins and you've been changed. 
You're not only justified before the Lord, you're actually living righteously. Such were some of you. Now, this is not saying that you must live without any sin in order to go to heaven. I shouldn't really even have to explain that. When you have that um, objection forming in your head, which you do, right? Are you saying that only people who don't sin should go to heaven? When that objection comes up, you know what you're doing there, right? You're wanting to get yourself off the hook of letting this verse convict you. When you raise that kind of objection, you're just putting a wall up immediately to letting this verse do its work. Because you don't like it. It's uncomfortable. You don't want to look in the mirror of God's word and, and look at your sin in relation to what you were beforehand. You just want to raise this objection, which is nonsense. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to live without sin to go to heaven. Even the youngest of Christians know that's not true. We have explicit statements in the Bible. If you say without sin, you're a liar. You just want to raise that objection immediately because you don't want, you don't want, to, you don't want to do the business of, of the hard work of looking into this text and saying, is this me? Right? And so don't do that. Don't do that. That's what your flesh wants to do. Your flesh wants to take something that's absolutely not true, act as if this text might be saying it so that you can just walk away from it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. What this text is saying is that when Christ came and died on the cross, those who were in Christ died to their sin. Paul says this very clearly in Romans chapter 6. This is the functional reality of a believer. When you are born again, when you are gifted faith and come to Christ and turn from your sin and call on the name of Jesus, you're, you're changed, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified, you're not the same. Now that reality isn't like 100% fully realized in that moment. It's lived out over a lifetime of incremental growth where the sins that you once struggled with, where the heart realities that once defined you are changing because God by his spirit is indwelling you and you cannot be the same when this gospel grabs hold of you. So you're not the same. His cross doesn't just remove what is old, it brings new We get that, right? The cross doesn't just take away old stuff. It, it births something new that's to be lived. If you're a husband who is not a Christian at the beginning of your marriage, and then at some point later on you become a Christian, you should be a different husband. If you live the first 35 years of your life as as a non-Christian, as an unbeliever, as a pagan, and you become a Christian at 40 or at 60, you should be different afterwards. 
Do not be deceived. You can't say, I trust Jesus, and then go on living unrighteously and think you'll inherit the kingdom of God. That's what's going on here. Paul loves people enough that he'll say hard things so that he doesn't tickle their ears and send them to hell forever, which is what's going on. Now, there's this saying in the church, fire and brimstone, right? I'm so glad we're not like the Baptist churches of the 1800s that preached fire and brimstone. How do you preach this text without preaching that? How do you say to people like you who are capable of deceiving yourself, convincing yourself that because you say, I trust Jesus, that because you go to church, that you'll inherit the kingdom of God automatically. You live like you've always lived. You continue to enjoy the sin that you've always enjoyed. And yet you are here deceiving yourself, lying about God's grace, that you'll go to heaven. And there could be no more unloving thing than for an apostle or a preacher to pat you on your back along the way. And Paul will not do it. We should not do it. We should not do it. So Paul has a list of sins. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous, and then he lists the kind of sins he has in mind with this term unrighteous. He has some sexual sins, sexual immorality, adultery, effeminacy, homosexuality. He's got some monetary sins, thievery, greed. He names drunkenness. Then he's got some sins of the mouth, reviling. Also has a connotation of physical violence. Somebody who's pugnacious, swindlers. Now this isn't an exhaustive list. Paul is not saying that only this list, if you continue on in these, won't inherit the kingdom of God, but any other sin's okay. He's dealing with the sins that are prevalent in that church. He's a good pastor. Good pastors talk about the sins they see in the counseling in Monday to Saturday on Sunday morning. That's what Paul's doing here. He has, he knows these people he knows the sins that these people have, and he's naming them here. And he's saying to them, do not be deceived, you adulterers. If you continue on in your adultery, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, you wealthy, greedy people. Remember, Corinth was a wealthy city. Corinth was a sexually immoral city. And the church was continuing on acting like they were before they became the church. And do not be deceived, you wealthy, greedy people who take your brother to court to win a judgment against him. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And do not be deceived, you drunkards. Those of you who go on getting drunk. Those of you who go on taking alcohol abusing it as God did not intend for it to be. Those of you who go on using drugs, 
you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so you understand what this text is doing here, right? And you have to go before the Lord by faith and let this text deal with you. You have to come before it and let this text evaluate you. This is something our world does not want to have you do. And so I think Paul leaves it just like he leaves it. He doesn't answer a bunch of questions here. He doesn't go into great details here. He doesn't nuance here. He just says something very hard and then leaves it because he wants you to wrestle with it. He wants you to go, is he talking to me? Is he talking to me here? The person in most danger in this congregation right now is the person who will not ask that question, who is saying he can't be talking to me. Can't be talking to me here. I'm a Christian. I trust Jesus. Yeah, but does your life match it? Does he, are you changed at all? That's what Paul is doing here. Is this you here? And the price is steep, brothers and sisters. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you understand the joy and the delight in the kingdom of God forever? Do you understand the, the glory that is coming for us? If you continue on in your sin, as always, you will not be there, but will be in hell. You will gain the whole world and lose your soul. You refuse to pluck out your eye, to cut off your hand, to deal with your sin drastically. And so you will go with two eyes and two hands into hell. You continue to live according to your flesh. And so you cannot claim to be a son of God. And so let's just let it lie there. Let me just read it again. Just let Paul's words deal with you. Or do you, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who are effeminate, nor the homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let that text do its work, brothers and sisters. Now, I want to get down into that little note at the end of verse 9. Because this is a prevalent sin in our culture and within the church and even in our church. There are actually two Greek words 
At the very end of verse 9, Malachi and Arsena Koite. Malachi refers to an effeminate man, a soft man. Arsenicoite uh, refers to a sodomite, a man who has sex with men, or a woman who has sex with women. Every single Bible translation of every language until the 1970s translated those two Greek words separately. You can look them up. King James Version, New King James Version, Revised Standard Version, American Standard Version, all of them. Till the 1970s. Luther in his German translation translated them different. Tyndale in his first English translation translated them differently. They translated them, nor the effeminate, nor the homosexual. Two separate Greek words. And then in the 1970s, beginning with the end, NIV, and now the ESV has followed suit, has combined those two terms. Removed the sin of effeminacy and just went with the sin of homosexual practice. They're different, but the most recent English translations have combined them. And then they put this little note The two Greek terms translated refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. Now what has happened is we have had a sexual revolution in our country, if you've been under a rock for the past 40 years. Started in the 60s or so, actually started in the 1800s, but really got picked up steam in the mid-1900s. And the liberal Christians wanted um, the sin of homosexuality erased from the Bible. Where a man would lie with a man or a woman lying with a woman. They wanted it removed. So there was a full-on press to change Scripture and to change it here to remove it to say that men who practice homosexuality will not enter the kingdom of God. The liberals wanted it to only say that just Men who are effeminate. They wanted to combine the two terms in the opposite way than what you see in the ESV or the NIV. Well, the conservatives wanted to stand firm that homosexuality is a sin. Rightly so. They went in the other direction and softened the language of effeminacy and went only with the language of practicing homosexuals. They're both wrong. Both of these terms are distinct terms. They refer to two totally different things. What Paul is saying here is that men who refuse to live out their masculinity, who instead live softly, who instead live effeminately, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then those who take that kind of internal lie into bed with another man will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's doing exactly what Jesus did with the sin of adultery. He internalized it. Right? Remember Jesus? It's not just that if you actually bet a woman who's not your wife. It's that even if you look at a woman's lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Paul's doing the exact same thing here with homosexuality. It's not if you just bet another man as a man. 
It's if you refuse to live out your masculinity, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. He, he puts it in the heart. Right? A man who is betting another man has for years before that lived effeminately. Men just don't end up in bed with other men. They refuse to be men before that. See what Paul's doing here? And in our age, we will not name effeminacy as a sin. Because it's a joke. It's already hard enough to get our culture to agree that homosexuality is a sin. And now we have to stand firm on the reality that men acting softly is a sin too. That's a joke. Come on, how medievalish of us. Now, uh, the strange thing is, non-Christian homosexuals get this. One of the leading, most often read, gay activists speaking about this very issue of the distinction between effeminate men and practicing homosexual men, in his classic 100 Years of Sexuality, wrote this. Being, th- this, is, this is a not a Christian guy. This is the furthest thing from a Christian you can get. He he is a leading gay activist. He wrote this. Being a womanish man, being an effeminate man, is not the same thing as being a homosexual. This guy wrote this. And the sexual activities that typically identify someone as being a womanish man are quite different from the sexual activities that identify someone is being a homosexual. (laughs) And the church doesn't have the stomach to say what that guy says is very plain. John Calvin in the Reformation spoke about this text. By effeminate, I understand those who, while while they may not openly become prostitutes, what he meant there is have gay sex for money. By effeminate, I understand those who, they may not openly become prostitutes, Nevertheless, show how unchaste they are by the use of pandering words, by effeminate bearing and dress, and by other means of attracting attention. I want to bring this up and focus on this sin. Now, I could easily focus on the sin of sexual immorality. I did that a few weeks ago when I was preaching through the beginning of verses of chapter 5. If you want to hit on that, go back. Check out the, the sermons on chapter Five verse one, where we talked in depth about homosexuality. I could really and really should talk about the money sins later on in this, the greed and the swindling. That's a temptation for us in our culture with the kind of wealth you and I have. But this effeminacy one is a big issue, and it's not being talked about. It's not being talked about. Now, I uh, I I was born in 1976. I was in locker rooms in the 80s and 90s. This is about the time that Arnold Schwarzenegger was calling people girly men. That's what this verse is talking about. This used to be a thing that was... In the locker room, we would talk about a a man who was soft, and we would um, say things uh, like gay. Right? Um... Aerosmith sang about this. Dude looks like a lady. Right? Right? 
That, that can't be played anymore in our culture. That it used to get this. Now, anybody who's seen, is it John Tyler, Stephen Tyler? Dress? <laughs> you could have looked in the mirror on that song. He was as effeminate as they could be. So this used to be something that was widely known. In Jesus' time, 100 years before Jesus' time, the first Caesar, Caesar Augustus, the only thing his political opponents could ever bring up about him was when he was a younger man, he was the passive homosexual partner of a wealthy older man, which all of the Caesars were, by the way, except one. <laughs> and, and, and the charge against him was that he was effeminate. <laughs> he wasn't fit to rule as a Roman ruler because he was an effeminate man. Because <laughs> he was a soft man. Uh, now, let's define this. What does it mean to be effeminate? Or on the other hand, what does it mean to be masculine? This isn't about beards. This isn't about how gruff and rough you are. This isn't about your ability to fix the transmission on your 1972 Chevy. This isn't about your ability to use a chainsaw or hunt or fish or golf, for goodness sakes. What does it mean to be a man biblically? What does it mean to be a man biblically? I just want to take you to two texts quickly. Turn to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. This is the charge I'm going to leave you with after the sermon. First uh, Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. Here's a definition of masculinity. Men are to be hard. They will not compromise on truth. They will stand firm. They are protectors. They are watchful. Right? They sit in the back of the church looking at the entrances for people who might come in and harm us. When they're for a walk with their family, they walk on the inside so that if a car comes, they get hit and nobody else. Right? They have that kind of mentality. They're watchful. They stand firm. They're strong. They will not yield in truth. They will not yield when others harm us. They will lay down their lives for others. Be watchful. Stand firm. Act like men. Be strong. It's Paul's definition of masculinity here. There is a toughness to masculinity. Should be. We should not lay down when truth is on the line. We should not lay down when people would want to harm other people. We will always take responsibility and sacrifice for others. Right? So don't picture John Wayne here. Don't picture, I don't know, name an actor today. 
Picture Christ, which I want to go to now. Look at uh, the end of Ephesians, if you would. Chapter 5. Beginning at verse 25. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 25. Husbands, talking to men here, just in case in our age we don't understand that to be a husband you have to be a male. (laughs) That was sarcastic. I'm really trying to not do that this morning because this is kind of a newer topic, so sorry. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church, how did he do that? How did Jesus live out his masculinity? By giving himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives, their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. So what is the essence here of a man? It isn't gruffness. It isn't machismo. It's the willingness to take responsibility for somebody else and sacrifice. It's the willingness to take weight upon yourself and off of another. Right? That's what Christ did, didn't he? Jesus came. He initiated. He took our sin. He took our weight. He suffered, sacrificed in our place for our sake. This is what it is to be a man. It's not to say women should not do this, but men should take the lead in doing this. You should take the lead in doing this in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, in the church, at workplace. Let's just get practical. You're here as a man and you got kids, and one of your kids is acting out. You shouldn't sit there until your wife takes deals with it. That is unmanly. That is soft. That's putting weight on somebody else. That's not taking responsibility. In the workplace, there's something wrong in your workplace. Everybody sees it. A man initiates taking responsibility for it. And takes weight upon himself to deal with it for the good of others. In family devotions, you and your wife, you and your kids, a man doesn't let weeks go by without opening the Bible after dinner. He doesn't wait for his wife to say, Honey, we should read the Bible. He takes the weight on himself. And the kids don't like it. The kids don't want it. But a man acts like a man. He's strong. He's firm. He doesn't move. In marriage, a man makes a decision. And he doesn't waffle when his wife disagrees. 
He's firm. He's not constantly changeable. Just look at your bodies as a man and a woman. They're very different, aren't they? I mean, even down to our sexual organs. We are different. Women's bodies are made softly to bear and nurture life. Men's bodies are made firmly. To even point this out is embarrassing, right? This is just so commonsensical, except in our day. We are to live out what we are biologically, is what Paul is saying here. The effeminate man, the man given a body of a man, and yet who lives softly, who betrays his God-given sex, will not inherit the kingdom of God, is what Paul is saying. A man who refuses to take responsibility who refuses to remain firm and steadfast and faithful. If that's the pattern of his life, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is one of the most convicting texts to me. <laughs> All right, so I've applied that. Let, let me give you a few more real quick. Again, this issue of effeminacy it isn't real cut and dry. And you want to ask questions, okay, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And again, be careful asking a bunch of clarifying questions because you know your heart. Sometimes, I'm tempted to say often, sometimes the reason you ask a bunch of clarifying questions isn't because you want a bunch of answers because you don't want to have to deal with it at all. And I think a man asking questions if he's living out his masculinity is one area that you don't want answers to. Because it's really easy to live a soft life. It's really easy to come home after work and demand somebody do something for you. It's real easy in our world to nuance your words and be really careful all the time with everything that comes out of your mouth and, and not be bold. So be careful about asking questions. Do the hard work necessary to search out what this means and to search out where you're not getting this right. There is no greater area in our society where pressure is being applied in this area. This is where our world hates us. If you haven't seen that in the last month, you are living with your eyes tightly clenched closed. Our world hates masculinity. Do you know why they hate masculinity? Because they hate God the Father. They hate God the Father. Men in our society are not shamed for being soft. They're applauded. A young boy being raised in a home who is being raised as a woman is thought goodly. <laughs> a young boy who's acting like a young girl is thought well. A young boy who's acting like a young boy... You know what young boys act like, right? They're a little crazy. 
They do impulsive things. They often have a lot of extra energy. And you know what we do with those boys today? We medicate them. And I'm not joking. Why? Because we hate masculinity. Because we hate God the Father. Lastly, words matter. You know how many words in chapter 6 we refuse to use anymore as a church? Look at verse 1. There's two there. We refuse to use the word unrighteous in reference to people. And refuse to use the word saints in reference to Christian. Because we're so soft in our language. We don't want to make distinctions anymore. We, uh, the, the only unforgivable sin in our day is to make distinctions. And so we won't use the word unrighteous on the one hand, nor saint on the other. If you're a Christian, and you love Christ, and you are walking repentantly in growing obedience, you are a saint, and do not be ashamed of it. And if you are not a Christian, or you're somebody who is lying about being a Christian, saying that you trust Jesus but you won't live for him, you are unrighteous. And there will be a clear divide one day about who those are. And if we won't make that decision now, you'll be surprised in the end, and I do not want you to be surprised. Words matter. We refuse to use the word effeminacy. We dare not say the word homosexual. And by the way, this is not saying... That somebody who has committed the sin of homosexuality cannot go to heaven. That's what verse 11 is for. But such were some of you. Do you know that the blood of Jesus can save you from your homosexuality? Christianity comes with a language. God's spirit inspired these words. How dare we refuse to use them? When we refuse to use biblical language, we are denying the truth that God inspired them. He chose these words. We need to use them. Lastly, just one more time, don't forget that Paul calls Christ's siblings saints. That's what we are. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take uh, this text and don't let us off the hook with it. Please, God, be merciful to us in all of our hemming and hawing, in all of our litany of questions in order to defend ourselves against this charge. God, please give us grace to deal with us according to your word. Please have mercy on us here. Help us to remember who we are in Christ and help us to do the work necessary that we might inherit the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name. All right, so the charge is this. God has created us male and female. That is good. Men, we are to act like men. Women, we are to act like women. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. May God's love be with all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Have a great week in the Lord.